0: Just a brief note before we get started, this episode is part of a special series we recorded at the Chemicals America Conference in Fort Worth, Texas. Rather than our usual in-house attorney guests, these episodes feature executives and other business leaders from outside of the legal department discussing some of the biggest issues facing the chemical industry today. We hope longtime listeners appreciate this temporary shift in perspective, and we welcome new listeners, especially those of you in the chemical industry, joining us for this special series. Now, on with the show. Welcome everyone to the In-house Roundhouse. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. We are here recording in Fort Worth, Texas. In today's podcast, we have two guests. We have Bill. Barbara from uh, Cadence Bank. We also have Bob Gurton from Edgewater Capital Partners. Uh, Bill and Bob, thank you for being here.
1: Afternoon, thank thanks for having us.
0: Great. Uh, this is part of our special chemicals series, and I thought it would be interesting for our listeners to understand a little more about um, some of the issues arising in connection with financing and private equity. I know, you know, some of the folks in this space are experiencing growth uh, and getting access to capital so they can fund that growth is important. Um, I thought maybe we'd start with you, Bill, and just kind of give us an overview of what you were seeing as you talk uh, to some of the chemical companies here about what their needs are and kind of where they are from a Financing perspective right now.
2: Sure. Thank you. It's it's a really interesting time in the industry Um, We've got a team that focuses exclusively on middle market, especially chemical companies a real interesting time In some ways the chemical industry in the United States is in a real renaissance with the low-cost feedstocks and raw materials going into a lot of the chemicals and plastics, but on the other hand There's a lot of um, headwinds, to use an overused term, globally with the geopolitical issues with China and um, just the state of the economies in Europe and other markets. So it's a real interesting time. You you combine that with a lot of older owner operators who are looking to retire, trying to find solutions on how to exit their business. If their kids don't want to get into the business, Mm. do they sell to private equity? Do they sell to a strategic? So it's, it's really an interesting time in the space with just a lot of moving pieces.
0: Yeah, I think the generational piece is interesting. I know at the, here at the conference I've talked to a few people that are like, how do we bridge this gap? We've got all these people that are in their 50s and 60s that have been doing it forever, but it's hard to find a lot of those younger people that are 30 and 40 that want to be in manufacturing. So I do think that's it's an interesting challenge for people wanting to transition out. Who do they turn that business over to?
2: It, it really is. And that, that was a, a big impetus behind us putting together this dedicated lending vertical. We met early on with folks like Bob and Edgewater because we saw this trend happening and we wanted to see how could we you know, play a part and create value. So for a lot of these smaller owner operators they turn to groups like Edgewater the private equity space because they can access a pretty deep bench of operators who have been in those shoes before who can help put the right management team together, recruit the right people so that the owner operator can exit gracefully, know that his company is still going to be in good hands, that his employees are going to be taken care of and working with Private equity and the right type of lending relationship to take that, both exit and take that business really to the next level.
0: I think that's helpful. Bob, Let's before we kind of dive into some specific stuff for chemical, I know a lot of people hear about venture capital, equity investment, uh, but tell us a little bit about what Edgewater does and kind of your role for people that may not actually had a chance to deal with a venture capitalist.
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, so we would call ourselves traditional private equity. Okay. In the space, I guess we've been doing this focus uh, in the chemical market for the last 20 years. Uh, there's an origin story in Edgewater goes back to the 1980s, but we've been doing what we do today since... Uh, 98. Um, We just raised Fund 4, so we like to describe ourselves as a resident in the space. Um, So we're here at every show. We're sponsoring events. Uh, We're a big supporter of Sokma and what the folks are doing there. We've got two portfolio companies here that are exhibiting but if you take a step back in our investment mandate, we spend all of our time investing in smaller performance materials companies. And so, by smaller, we tell bankers anything less than 100 million in revenue we'd want to look at. Really, for us, it's uh, somewhere between two and 20 in EBITDA, um, okay. which really breaks down to two types of deals. Uh, for us, uh, say uh, uh, 40% of our transactions historically have been owner operators looking for the succession planning that Bill just described. Those businesses are generally let's say give or take five in EBITDA. And then 60% of our deals have been corporate carve-outs. And so those are generally give or take 10 and EBITDA. Um, The common commercial narrative or the core of our investment thesis though is small but critical component of an end product. Uh, We think of our businesses as technical service, they're solution providers. We like it when our companies are known as an application expert. So we're solving a a problem for our customer. Um, And it's often on a very strong technical basis. In both the owner-operator or the corporate carve-out, they're typically very technically competent. They struggle with commercial. Where do we fit? What's the call to action? How do we scale? It's institutionalizing the systems. A lot of times when we eat with folks and we ask what drives demand for your product, a lot of times they don't know, but the problem is very interesting to them. And so we will build, when we invest in a business that'll all be around a customer value proposition, a customer of the problem, and that'll drive investment in oftentimes human capital. Uh, So CFO, commercial, technical groups, operations folks. Uh, Two is then going to be around the facility uh, capabilities, institutional systems, ERP system, data-driven systems. And then the third is going to be technology, which might be a patent, but doesn't have to be. So it's something where we're differentiating, helping building that same thesis where we like to be solving a problem. Gotcha
0: and does i'm sure i know every deal is different in terms of the actual structure does edgewater typically take complete ownership or is it you know shared with someone who's departing or phased in over time or all all of the above what is yeah, it so if, if i'm just thinking if i'm beginning to think about going to edgewater capital what kind of structures are available or what what's typical
1: sure so if you're looking at a corporate carve out it's almost always going to be 100 um, percent. they're looking for that closure and transition and that's something we can bring them uh, speed and surety. On the uh, owner-operator with transition, more often than not, they're going to be our partner. These folks are generally very important to their business. Uh, they're frequently still in a senior leadership position. And more often than not, they've cold key customer relationships and technical knowledge. Mm. And so in there, it's very much the mentality of the partnership. So uh, how do we get to know them? How do we get to align in the vision of what they want to build and what role they'd like to play? A lot of times, they don't want to be in a senior leadership role they like being in the technical piece and interacting with customers and so that's certain something we can build a thesis around and build a program around um, so if you like the majority of our I've, all of them, I can't think of an exception where it's an owner operative uh, transition. They're mm-hmm. almost always our partner. Okay.
0: So they're a partner. They're staying on, but they're bringing you in. They may be transitioning some of that management to yeah. somebody else, but they're keeping the customer relations. Yeah. And, and it's kind of a transition plan typically.
1: Yeah. And I'd echo Bill's comment. Right? So in these, um, these are technical service businesses. So we take to heart taking care of the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we take to heart taking care of the customers and then making sure we're building around that. This is not a, a lean out cost type play. This is how do we build and enables that next step of growth? Gotcha. Um, what are
0: some things, if I'm in the industry, let's focus, I know you've got the two different types. So let's say, you know, I'm approaching retirement, I want to ease off. What are some of the things to think about if I'm, you know, evaluating going with, with Edgewater or some other firm? What are what are the factors that they should be looking at in terms of both picking a partner, thinking about how to structure it, kind, yeah. of, th- kind of those pros and cons? Because I think it's an area where people hear about it, but they don't, you know, they don't always know what, what to think about. Yeah. Um, and.
1: I think the biggest one is starting early, right? This is like any big problem or any big transition you're going to make. So uh, three, five, seven years out, you start thinking about succession planning. Uh, Mm -hmm. You start thinking about uh, your role as a leader in a business, as an owner in a business. And the majority of the time, how how important are you to day to day uh, and the role you've got to play? I think that's something when you look at that would be part one and what is my end objective. And then that'll, that'll tell you what type of partner you're going to need to get there. Um, If you go, closer to the exit I do think some owners or a lot of owners maybe aren't well prepared so they don't have good advisors um, I do think MA attorneys having that early and sort of calibrating expectations preparation what uh, deal structure is appropriate mm-hmm. uh, I think that's pretty critical so I think having your circle of experts around you um, but just like anything it's, there's no secret it's begin with the end in mind right and working working work into that uh, future game plan
0: that sounds good.
2: And I'll add to that, that it's, it's exactly what Bob said. You've got to start with the end in mind and it takes years of preparation for that. And a lot of it, it's not just the technical aspects of surrounding yourself with advisors to sell the business or to bring in a partner. It's the personality fit, it's the what do you want to do as the exiting owner. And Bob touched on something earlier, and a lot of these folks, they aren't ready to just get out of the business, but they know for estate planning purposes or whatnot, they have to do some things. So to work with the right partner where there's a good personality fit, if you've got a technical weakness, a group that can bring you that. If you want to stay in the business, a group that understands that, that you could switch into a sales role or go back into the laboratory where you've always enjoyed being And there's a lot of private equity players looking at the chemical space right now. Some of them have very deep roots in the space like Edgewater and a couple others. And some are just getting into it because it's a hot space to be in. So the business owners gotta be really careful who they partner up with. And I've seen so many deals where they get close to the finish line and something just blows up. And a lot of times it blows up over personalities. Just they finally figure out they can't work with this group even though they've invested six months of their life trying to mm. trying to get comfortable. It, it's a marriage in a lot of ways with these private businesses and different private equity firms fit well, in different size companies, different industry segments, different regions of the country, there's a lot of qualitative aspects that go into it, as well as getting the numbers right and getting the business prepped for sale.
1: Yeah, I'd echo that, especially at the size companies, right? Culture fit. Yeah, culture fit that's is, is what we're almost to more right. more important than mm-hmm. the the quantitative, right? In a lot of ways. Right. So I'd, I'd echo that. We we pride ourselves on being uh, Midwest guys, which I'd, I'd echo. Bill's great to work <laughs> with. Right? He's thoughtful and where he spends his time and how he asks questions and not everything goes from the lower left to the upper right, and so he's a good partner when things do go wrong. <laughs> we would echo the, the try to exhibit the same qualities, right? So after the investment thesis, the people is number two. We don't make decisions. We're based in Cleveland. You'll never hear Cleveland make a demand of our portfolio company out of maybe EHS. It's about finding the right thesis, finding the right people, picking the right strategy, and then our job is to enable and support, uh, not to make decisions for them. So right. Gotcha.
0: Interesting. I know this is a pretty dynamic time for specialty chemicals, with you know some exciting upside potential. But as you, I think, use the word headwinds, right? There's some there's some challenges. What are some of the things that the folks that you're working with, either your portfolio companies or or other folks you're working with, what are some of those challenges? And any you know any advice you'd want to give listeners to you know practical tips for dealing with some of the current things facing those folks today?
1: I'll to go first. me <laughs> to?
2: It's a big question, so I know. Hindsight Uh, hindsight always is crystal clear, right? Um, Right now, a lot of conversations about what happened in Q4, what's going to happen this year, and it all is around the geopolitical risk with China, and a lot of conversations about how, long it takes to bring on a secondary supply source Mm -hmm. a lot of not necessarily our clients or bob's portfolio companies but their customers are typically the really the large big global chemical companies they move really slow so all of a sudden you're asking them to find a secondary source of supply so that you can make a certain chemical compound for them that ends up in something two or three steps down the road. Very complicated supply chain logistics. They don't move quickly. So a lot of conversations about needing to find a secondary source of supply. Well, that may take two or three years. So as we're going through the latest issue, people are saying, wow, we're not going to let that happen again. You know, we're going to have secondary sources of supply. We're going to reshore certain things, but that takes time. So I guess the advice is, is just prepare for have contingency plans. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, when the energy markets were cycling down, a lot of our customers had um, really solid contracts built out of fear of price appreciation. So when prices were falling, they were still on a cost plus a margin basis. Well, mm-hmm. their margins stayed exactly the same, but when the cost <laughs> went from $10 to $5 a unit, the margin stayed 10%, but the contribution profit was cut in half. Mm. So we learned through that. So now the contracts are getting revised. Right. So Who would have
0: thought prices would go down? Yeah, those <laughs> little things. So we,
2: we, we addressed that issue a few years ago, and now the whole thing is, what do we do? There's so many things that are made in China that nobody thought about having alternate supply sources. So figuring out the supply chain logistics, I think, is the big issue for most of my clients in 2020. And... Hopefully, you know things will bump along, and then post-election, they'll stabilize a little bit.
0: What are your thoughts on stockpiling? I know I've talked to some others. You know, for, for a long time, there's been a push, not just in the chemical industry, but manufacturing overall to go lean, just in time, kind of manufacture. We don't want to keep large inventories. And obviously, often there's good financial reason for that, right? You don't want it sitting there. But I, given the volatility, I wonder about a, a change in that approach. Well, I
2: could probably give a more technical answer. As a banker looking at my clients, it comes just down to dollars in space a lot of, mm. everything is everybody's evolved to a just-in-time model a lot of our clients smaller chemical companies don't have the space to store it mm. and a lot of their customers are supplying the inventory for our customers to process so it's again you're talking about unwinding certain ways of thinking certain supply yeah. chain logistics it's just not as simple as ship me another load it's it's all intertwined with a lot of moving pieces
1: so I'd echo that um, in terms of growth or in issues, right, headwinds would be facing. I, I would put number one is supply chain disruption. If you look in the history of narrative, right, everybody would in the States at least would pitch, move your production back from China or Asia. Right, bringing into into Europe or in the U.S. That was always a theoretical risk. Right now, right. you have real. <laughs> I can talk about real outages it's, and real issues. So that's new, right? Happening. So this is blue sky regulation three or four years ago. Right then, it moves into geopolitical and tariff risk. Right now, it's the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. We've got shipping on the water issues. I mean, there you can talk about real outages and real disruption. Well, I and have, even
0: Europe isn't I mean We've got the Brexit in the yeah, EU. That, and that that is exactly. Insane. Yep. Yep. What's, what's that going to look like? What yep. are the, what, what's the ports and the tariffs and the that situation going to look like you're
1: you're exactly right so uh in response to that what are people doing i have seen people be proactive about moving things back to the west i have not seen people build safety stock as a response um Mm -hmm. maybe in higher value molecules in particular in pharma where there's enough slop in value or long enough lead times in supply chain right you just need that but in terms of industrial i still feel people are keeping these really tight right this Mm -hmm. is the i don't know what next quarter looks like Hmm. Uh, I need to adapt, right? Where are we in a cycle? I've got to assume the floor is going to drop soon. And so if anything, I feel I'm continuing to lean yeah, uh, at exactly. the risk of disruption and outages. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I would echo that. So number one in my book would be supply chain. Then it would be people hiring skilled workforce. This is operator level all the way up in engineers. Yeah. We don't make a lot uh, of them anymore. And leadership group. And then three is growth, right? Where do I find growth opportunities? Those would be our big three.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Where is, where for new capital coming in, whether it's loans or investments, is it, is it going into classic capital projects, new plants, new facilities or technology, IP, all of the above? Where, where's that new money flowing to now?
1: So uh, our lens is limited, right? So I have to focus on areas that we would invest. I would, in ours, it would be human capital. It would be the first place I'd be investing dollars. And it is probably in a technical capacity. Mm -hmm. And those are tough hires. Secondary to that, it's going to be sales. Uh, And these are not menu salesmen. These are technical sales guys. Often engineers are out in the market looking for problems, walking through plants, looking for issues. So finding uh, someone that has that intellectual horsepower with the same amount of curiosity and probing, that's a tough Mm. That is a tough hire in this market. Um, In facilities, I would say if I'm going beyond that, I I see us in areas of select areas of tightness of capability or capacity, and then unique unit operations, right? So I'm going to put X, Y, Z unit operation into new facility Y, and it's just going to be a small piece of maybe a bigger pie. And it probably is going to be driven by a customer saying, you know, I've got to bring this thing back home. Would you guys do it for me? Uh, What would it take?
2: a lot of time being spent on debottlenecking yeah. older plants to Bob's point trying to reposition where you can fit a specific unit into an existing facility for a specific purpose with somebody reshoring an opportunity um, I think and it's kind of the next wave is going to be you've got a lot of old plants out there um, and they're going to have to get smarter, so kind of that whole wave of, you know, making dumb things smart. Mm-hmm. What that means, I think, is to be determined, but I think in the next few years will be a lot of investment in computerization, getting the plants to talk to you better so you can fix things before they break. Instead of having to turn around to do this, you can be, you know, repairing on the go, but the plants have to be able to communicate that back to, to the operator, so that's kind of, I think, the next frontier capital investment. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's one possible partial answer to the human shortage is try to automate more, you know, have your plant guy do more with, with technology. Yeah, but we, but still need, there's we still limits. need
2: smart humans to implement the new technology. Right. We really have a shortage of talented STEM. You read it all the time, but it's real. There's just not enough young people going into these fields to match the retirement age folks that are exiting the business. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be fascinating how the industry deals with that. Yeah.
0: Where you, you, and obviously this, I would imagine is. Just conversation, not necessarily directly with your work per se, but what are you hearing from your clients about and your partners about uh, immigration? I mean, obviously, that's, we've heard that's the big conversation is we don't, but there are elsewhere we want to bring them in, but it's a challenge.
2: It's a huge challenge. Um, I was, was up in Canada a couple of times last year with folks looking at buying businesses there, and that's a big plus that those men and teams bring to the table with an American investor saying, we don't have the issues you have. We you know, they have real specific immigration policies to address these specific needs. I think as a country, we have to get smarter on how we deal with that because we don't have a choice, frankly.
1: I'd say for the ones we're recruiting, I've uh, not felt that specifically. It, m- it might be a geographic where our portfolio companies are. Uh, on areas that are closer to a border, we certainly feel that, if not directly in the business, as a threat to our hiring and the wage, we have to pay to get high-quality talent. Uh, so certainly as an awareness and understanding what's out mm-hmm. there. And I, I see disparity in labor market uh, is, is pretty extreme from one region to another. So you got to be thoughtful about your pool and who you're recruiting from and what that looks like and how you're putting a compelling offer on the table to hire a workforce.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Um, I know we're about out of time. Um, are there kind of final remarks that you want to give from a financing perspective to listeners about things to, to think about or be aware of? And also how to get in touch with you if they have more, more questions, sure. too. You can include that. Yeah, you
2: know, I will say it's, it's, there's a lot of capital in the specialty chemical space, much more than there was a few years ago. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. I think a business owner has to be really careful on how they use debt and who they partner with. Uh, we talked about the personality and all the issues that go into picking a partner. But on the debt side, yeah, there's a lot of people willing to put a lot of leverage on these companies. And as the business owner, I think they just have to be careful and understand what they're getting themselves into. Because if there's a shift in the business, if the business is commodity sensitive, or if the business is you know, facing supply chain logistics like they are now, and you've put a lot of leverage on the business, that, really make it difficult to operate and you know, you don't want to be running your business for your banker. you don't want to be running a business for, for anybody but your stakeholders and it can get tricky with the, with the leverage game. A lot of non-banks are putting a lot of credit into the space right now and that's a good thing and a bad thing again because it comes back to the right amount of leverage on that business. These businesses have different personalities and different leverage thresholds and people have to understand that just because it's available doesn't necessarily mean you, you should take it. Mm. Um, and so what people outside this
0: industry just applying some more generalized yeah. norm credit review, and, yeah, you yeah. know, extending credit that maybe it's not a good idea to right. take. I mean, that's just
2: common sense too, really. Mm. But I think it's worth noting because we're seeing you know certain pressure points that we've talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Cadence Bank, uh, we're one of the only. Um, commercial banks with a dedicated industry vertical around specialty chemicals and plastics were um the only bank members of Socma so we're like Bob we're at all these shows and and I'm pretty easy to find at the shows or through Socma and you know that type of thing so uh, I'd echo that. Bill's a great partner. Um, there
1: are a lot of lenders in the world. Bill does a really nice job in sticking to his knitting, uh, knowing the bet he's taking, and being a good partner when either really positive or negative things seem to come up, which they always do on how do we get through this, how does it change the thesis, is the business secure. Um, so he's a steady hand, which is nice to have as a partner when you go into these. So um, for, for us, uh, and I was just thinking about the meetings at the show. Today, there are more private equity and investment bankers at this show than I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, so this this market, I think with the amount of capital out there, we're awash in capital. So finding a good outcome for an exit or a deal or liquidity is probably not the most difficult thing. And maybe that was different 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Now it's how do I find the right partner? Right. Um, so we, we would pride ourselves on at Edgewater and differentiating and being a resident in the space we do this one thing really well in helping organizations grow and invest and and scale, especially on the smaller end of the market. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two, I would lean into uh, Midwestern values. So put us up against any New York coastal private equity guys, but we play well in the sandbox, we're good partners. It's about being a link and a partner with an owner and how do we protect your people, protect your customers and get to that next step. So uh, more information for us at edgewatercapital.com. We would welcome a conversation. Um, Even if uh, we're not the right fit, we're happy to point you in the right direction or connect you with a Bill or, or someone like Bill to help you get to the next step. Terrific. Well,
0: we appreciate right. you both being here. You know, uh, Wamble Bond Dickinson's the only law firm member of SOCMA, so we, we appreciate the, uh, right. the focus on the industry and, you know, trying to provide the full range of legal services, just like you guys are providing uh, those services in the finance area. So I appreciate you spending the time to let people know what those issues are and making them available. This so great. so Thank you. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for having us. Um, That'll bring us to the end of the show. I do want to remind our listeners you can find previous episodes and subscribe to this podcast at WombleBondDickinson.com or simply go to iTunes, Google Play Store, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you have questions or comments, you can share them with us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Always interested in topics for future episodes as well. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of Womble Bond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.